Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I can't believe I just scratched that car. Find my insurance card. Dude, what do you have in this glove box? Ew, are these socks dirty? Oh, forget about the socks. I need my insurance card. Just pull it up on the State Farm mobile app. But I can do that? Oh, hey, I can do that. Yep, it's called service. I can file a claim on here, too? Yeah, it's it's called service. Whoa, I could call my agent, too? It's called service. Insurance with local agent? It's called service. Call State Farm agent Megan Roberts in Atlantic today. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Potterooner. This week's episode is sponsored by JestFest. Wexford comes alive on the Maybank holiday weekend when the finest street theatre and comedy acts come to town. A spirit of devilish revelry fills the Viking streets as Irish and international street jesters, acrobats and contortionists wow us with their amazing shows. As the sun sets, stand-up comedians take the stage in atmospheric venues all over town, armed with hilarious one-liners, anecdotes and monologues to make you laugh and make you cry. With a garnish of sideshows, comedy in the dark, cult movie screenings and the spoken nerd, Wexford is the only place to be for the May bank holiday weekend. Well, I don't know if you can notice, but my voice is a little bit hoarse today because I've had a very hectic few days. I was down in the Roisin Dove in Galway performing with the Who's Lines That Anyway fellas, Stephen Frost, Steve Steen and Ian Coppinger. It was an absolutely brilliant night. Good fun. We stayed up and had a few drinks afterwards. I went to bed at about 2.30 in the morning, which perhaps I shouldn't have done because I had to get up at 730 for a train, we had to get up at seven for a seven thirty train to Dublin to shoot a scene in a film at ten in Dublin. So I get up at a quarter to seven. I get to the train. I get on the train. I arrive at ten to ten. I pick up my bike. I cycle to the agreed meeting place. There's no one there. I look at my email. I see they are now meeting at Hanover Quay where they're shooting. I cycle down there. Everyone is there, but doesn't seem to be any hurry to shoot my scene. So. It gradually emerges that my scene has been put back until two in the afternoon. And someone says, oh, we sent you an email to tell you that the time had changed at 6pm last night. 6pm the night before. No one even phoned me. I know these are young kids, but fuck me. I have a life to live and my daughter's coming home from school at 4.20. I would like to be there when she comes home. I have a gig in the laughter lounge that night and now I won't be able to go home and change and on top of which I had just three hours sleep in order to be here. Besides the fact that I'm not even getting paid for this because basically they're all students and the only thing that kept me from completely losing it is I love the character I'm playing and I think it'll actually look really good on screen because my daughter has to come home from school and make her own dinner. But these student filmmakers, they don't give a shit about that. They're too busy standing around discussing fucking David Lynch and fucking Francois fucking Truffaut while Truffaut doesn't feed my daughter. Lars von Trier doesn't stop me from feeling like a trap because I can't get home for a shower and change of clothes. 
Oh, I'll stop me feeling shitty because I have to do a gig tonight on three hours sleep and haven't spent the day standing around a film set drinking shitty coffee while silently fuming. Not only that, actually, later on then I had to leave in a hurry and I, my bicycle was locked. I said, would somebody unlock the bike and then lock it down in Dame Street later on so when I come out of my gig it'll be there. And I and, and, and someone said, yes, I'll do that. I won't get there till nine. And I said, that's fine. I won't be out till eleven. And uh, I don't get a call about that, but I go up to Dame Street. I look around any of the biking parking places in Dame Street and my bike isn't there. They just didn't do it. I'm just like, what? Shit. Oh, so, oh, right, right, right. I'm just getting a bit over anxious about that. Now, if you've heard last week, you would have seen that uh, I was getting an email from uh, Reverend Rick Warren about doing a gig in London and um, it was the strangest gig because uh, they said they wanted me to speak in front of um, lots of ministers for the Celestia Church, uh, Celestia Church, whatever the hell that is. So I sent an email back saying, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I don't think it's really the right thing for me. Are you sure it's me that you want? And they wrote back to me and they said, dear Joe. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the response and also would like to let you know that God chose you to be our guest speaker for this wonderful anniversary which is coming up live in the UK. The event organising committee is taking care of your travelling, meal and other relevant things. What would you like to know more? And this this is incredible because I've, I've, I've sent a message back. I'm waiting on a reply. I said, thank you, Rick. I'm delighted that God chose me for this event. Can I ask if you know how God became aware of my work? And can you please ask God for a quote that I can put on my website and poster? Once again, I must ask you for details of my accommodation and fee. Uh, and here's a number you can call me. So we'll wait with bated breath. Well, this week's episode is an interview with uh, Karcher Reardon, who played bass with the Pogues. Uh, it's a, a, it became quite an in-depth interview. It went smoothly, I thought, uh, except when I mentioned a certain bespectacled singer from uh, the UK. Things went a little bit awry, but we've recovered from that. Uh, And I'm really, really delighted that she came in and uh, chatted with me. So I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I'm a full-time student at UCD and I'm gigging as well, so just balancing the research and the gigs. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you studying in UCD? I'm doing my PhD now. You came to my graduation when I got my bachelor's Oh, yeah, I was there with uh, Roisin. You were, that was a good night. Thanks for coming. Yeah, no problem. And I went straight into doing my master's, and they were both psychology, the bachelor's and the master's, and then I transferred over to the business school and I'm doing a PhD study of um, group dynamics. Oh yeah, what does what does that mean? Group dynamics is the way people interact. You start off with a framework, you establish your definitions, what is a group, and within groups I'm p- particularly interested in teams, people mm. that have to work together to create a product All and right. function together. 
So I'm using my psychology background now to yeah. see how do small creative teams that don't have a management, yeah. uh, external management hierarchy, how do they negotiate day-to-day situations? Oh, okay. And, you know, what works, what doesn't work, what variables are at play in yeah. negative outcomes, and more interestingly, what works for positive outcomes. Yeah, do you, do you find you work good in a team? Or? Yeah, I... I because I've been studying so long now, I tend to detach slightly and take an observer view, whereas before I would have always been right in the middle causing the trouble. So <laughs> it's nice to kind of step out and um, take notes mentally, if nothing else. Right, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm good in a team. Cause I'm doing, I do stand-up comedy, so I'm working on my own a lot. Yeah. So... Um, uh, that's yeah so I don't have to work at a team I was in a band for a while that was okay but I never really yeah never really partook that much it's a bit like you take a step back yeah a bit like you now not right. in your past yeah was it like that in in the pose was it everybody joining in well I mean it was all 30 years ago and it was all alcohol and <laughs> drug fueled so I would say I am a very unreliable witness. <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. Right. Uh, well, look, I don't know much about you. I know, but I do know you were born in Nigeria. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, and Nigeria, why were you born in Nigeria? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you probably I, don't know. You weren't, I, you were yeah, just being born. Nobody asked me. Nobody <laughs> yeah. asked me. I was just. That's all I know. I, you know, I got to a certain age. I saw my birth certificate. I went, hang on a sec. This says Lagos, Nigeria. Yeah. And my dad was working for oil companies during the 60s. Right. So I, he happened to be deployed in Nigeria. But then I was born in January 65. And I think within 18 months of me being born, the Biafran situation started up. Oh, yes. And it quickly spread right across the country. And at some point, the international companies just pulled non-Nigerian personnel, left just the skeleton crew, I guess. Mm. And my dad was one of the people who got pulled and redeployed. And he briefly was in London for a while and he left the family there and then he moved on to I think Mauritania, Gatar, various oil places but uh, we kind of got left behind in London. Oh in London? Yeah so that's why I talk like this. <laughs> yeah. yeah but are you, look is your Irish background a big thing? Yeah, it became a very big thing. My dad was extremely cynical about Ireland and I don't know what they did to him here but it wasn't good. Yeah, they did a lot of bad things to a lot of Irish Yeah, people. so which we're just finding out about now. Mm. So um, he wasn't uh, he wasn't sentimental, you know. You'd find this the way you do with say the Irish Americans. God love them; they have a very sentimentalised view, and even the London Irish who you know don't have the excuse of great distance can have a very diddly eye shamrocks and leprechauns view of Ireland mm. my dad did not have that at all he wouldn't get weepy or sentimental about the old country he left behind but um I grew up very political in the era of Thatcher and even before that when I was a kid growing up there were three-day um, power cuts, there were strikes, all, all under a Labour government for a while and then under a Tory government. So you learned very young that it doesn't matter who's in power, there's still rubbish in the streets, you still have to queue up to get bread and sugar. 
you know, learnt lessons very young. And then when I was 14 and I was already a kind of troubled teenager, Thatcher came into power. Mm. So it was like perfect storm, teenage angst. And uh, so I was very politicised and that coincided with the 10th anniversary of the troops going into the streets in Belfast. There was a lot of coverage about that. And something in me just completely latched onto that. You know, rather than latching onto a particular band or a particular musical movement, I latched onto this, oh, hang on, you know, the reason why people make fun of my name and my dad talks funny is because I'm Irish. And this is what Irish means. And uh, really went very deep into finding out about the history and the background stuff my dad hadn't passed on but so he didn't grow up with the no not at all so it was it was a choice I made you know my mother was Scottish I could have just easily decided to be Scottish but my identity just completely latched on to being London Irish and then within I think two years I'd met Shane and gone into that whole London Irish music thing that he was building up in North London Mm. So, yeah, it all consolidated while I was a teenager. <laughs> yeah, just yeah, a great thing because um, Father Ted and the Pogues came out around the same time, was it? Uh, maybe the Pogues first. Pogues were early 80s, early, early, so yeah. I think a decade oh, yeah. ahead of... Oh, a decade Ted, ahead, yeah, right. Graham yeah. Linehan was still a journalist at Hot Press. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because before that, being Irish was a bit... Uh, yeah, it was a bit dodgy. I always felt... Um, yeah, wary of my accent when I was in London and stuff. As well. Right, yeah. It was because the IRA thing. And yeah. You get searched going over on the boat train. If you got went on the boat train, oh, I yeah. didn't fly, but on the boat train. Yeah, you coming off the ferries, there was those dodgy guys in the badly fitted blue suits looking you up and down. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the Pogues had a great hand in just making being Irish, making people proud to be Irish and proud of their... Yeah, and it was a thing that kind of happened at the same time because Kevin Rowland, now God love him, there's a lot of people that don't don't get him at all, Mm. but uh, Search for the Young Soul Rebels came out when I was 15 and the first thing I ever heard by him was the record called Dance Dance where he just lists all the great Irish authors. Talking about Brendan Behan, Sean O'Casey, George Bernard Shaw, Oscar Wilde, Samuel Beckett, Edna O'Brien. Just Mm. list them and it was like, yeah, all right, represent. And uh, he happened and then within two years... He changed. Kevin had changed into the diddly eye, um, come on Eileen. Come on Eileen thing, yeah. But at the same time, Shane was building on his own amalgamation in his head of more Sex Pistols and the Dubliners and the Clancy Brothers. Mm. And because Shane's a genius, of course, it came out in this completely mm. new, fantastic form. But I mean, you have to have the gift of writing like Shane has. Mm. And not just writing though, but just the whole idea, the whole image, even the cover of the first album with the the picture of uh, John F. Kennedy and the Pope, isn't it? It's uh, just JFK and the Pogues. It's yeah. just yeah, but, but that's the yeah. that's the Irish centre in Camden. We, and we were all based around Camden, so that was a no brainer. That's yeah. an easy one. Now just go and stand in the Irish centre, stand in front of that great big picture. Well, you know, and we'll take your photo. But that was the, the. Oh, really? That was just there. That's yeah. You, it's still there. It's still at the Irish oh. Centre. has just celebrated its sixtieth anniversary. You imagine? And we were there thirty years ago. So yeah, it was already a dusty old thing back then. Oh God, I just thought that was probably thought about and set up, and you got. Oh well. See, no, not <laughs> at all. It was, it was just that was the London Irish culture. 
you know that that was our gathering spot and you'd walk in and then oh there's JFK and you're right you know on another mantelpiece there'd be pictures of the Pope mm. and there'd be pictures of the All-Ireland champions that year you know it was yeah. all, all this kind of like in my head now I tag it as parlor P-A-R-L-O-R L-O-U-R it's stuff that you kind of imagine would be in the parlour somebody's mantelpiece above the fireplace you'd be sitting drinking cups of tea it's a kind of fantasy Ireland in my head because I didn't grow up with it and yet it's actually real it's real yeah yeah. it's real so uh, yeah that JFK picture on the front of the post first down was just a huge blown up to life size version of everybody's parlour back home yeah in the yeah. old country it was in every house yeah and maybe a picture of a pope and a sacred heart uh, paint, painting with the light bulb oh, on God. it <laughs> yeah <laughs> nightmares yeah I know yeah <laughs> So where did you go to school then? In What school did you go to in London? I went to school, it was called Nella Girls School, which was named yeah. after the music college uh, in that... I grew up near Heathrow Airport. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of conurbation in West London. Once you pass the river, there's this kind of long sprawl called Hounslow. Mm-hmm. And you, there's Richmond, then there's Hounslow, Hounslow, Hounslow for miles and miles and miles, and then suddenly you're at Heathrow. And that's where I grew up, with the planes coming down really close over the rooftops. Uh, the upside of it was Concord. When Concord started flying, that was a huge thing at school. We were all gathered outside, mm. standing outside, looking to see this plane. It was I remember that really clearly. And I remember the house shaking yeah. when it used to go over. It was fantastically exciting, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and did your mother work? She, yeah, oh, God, yeah, yeah, they both worked. My mother had... To, my dad worked days when he was in the country but he also went off on these three months um, I keep calling them deployments I'm sure we didn't call them that back then yeah. the three month postings you right. know where you go off to the desert somewhere and you know wire up oil fields or something yeah. and then reappear but the whole time my mother had to work nights and she was a nurse oh, right. so I, I, general nursing no, she worked on uh, what's it called ITU intensive care wards. Oh. Which I can only imagine what a mind bend that must have been. Now, I mean, at the time, I had no sympathy at all because she was just rat bag. But now I think, no wonder anyone would be a rat bag doing that job and then trying coming home, grabbing a few hours sleep, and then having to deal with four children. Gosh, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, they both my parents had to work. Right, yeah. And did you go to Catholic school or not at all? No, no. 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 A part of my dad's antipathy towards Ireland was an antipathy mm. towards the church and he kind of organised religion. He used to claim he was a communist, uh, but I mean, ha- ha- you know, for an old company. Yeah, you <laughs> kind of think, mm, hang on, Deb. but he was a union guy. He was he was very involved in the electricians' union politics. I do remember him mm. ranting about names that later turned out to be like part of the history of the unions no, back then, yeah. before before Thatcher um, started working her magic. Mm. Um, yes, he, he, my dad was very politicised, but mm. he only picked it up kind of by osmosis. Right, yeah. yeah it, you, you did not see him that much? Or huh? Did you not see him that much? No. <laughs> no? Okay. No. He was away a lot, and then when he was back, my memory of him overall is him sitting in a chair 
watching sports on the telly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, proper dads. I know that what dads did at that time. They had a chair that you could no one else could sit on. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's from Clare. He liked to eat bacon sandwiches and watch golf on the telly. <laughs> right, yeah. So he didn't uh, hang out with other Irish people around like that. Oh yeah, there was a place uh, not far away called Saint Teresa's Social Club which was attached to some church or something. That's where he used to go and hang out with his mates, who were yeah. guys he worked with. He was an electrician. So when he was in the country, he... Uh, I can't remember any of the guys' names now. I just remember the way they used to dress, which was the big suits. Yeah. Or I guess the suits weren't big, but the lapels were big and the ties were wide. And I think, did they have flared trousers? very particular style mm. and then when you see films now that try and recreate say the Guildford 4 era that's it that's they just that's, look they like look the, right. my dad and his mates well my dad leaned more to the Val Dunican school oh, of off duty beige a yeah slacks gansey <laughs> beige relax yeah, yeah, yeah. Big teeth and a quiff yeah <laughs> and big soles on the shoes as well yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a real... Val Dunican's still alive. See, yeah. Isn't that wonderful? It's good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sean Hughes reminds me of Val Dunican. You know Sean Hughes, the comedian? Yeah. Look, that look about him. Huh, Not, sure. the, ad, not the attitude. The, no, <laughs> funny. Yeah. yeah. So uh, and then you went to secondary school, was, what was that? Same, more of the same, same except, yeah. you know, I hit puberty and just kind of <laughs> did, didn't even drop out, started actively kicking against the pricks and mm. was just in trouble all the time failing exams um mm. yeah it was it was a drag it was just a drag being at school mm. <laughs> so you didn't stick with it but like it wasn't a you did you leave school or something? yeah early? well at 16 you're legally allowed to leave so that was the end of it for me i just wasn't ready <laughs> i know <laughs> i needed another mm, 30 <laughs> years <laughs> yeah yeah uh what did you do then I ran away from home and I joined yeah. the circus. I, you know, hung around record shops. I was in hostels. I met Shane. He needed a bass player. Yeah. You can be the bass player. Joined the Pogues. Uh, did you meet Shane? Uh, I don't know if this is right. I looked it up on Wikipedia, but you... Wikipedia is not an acceptable source. I know, but <laughs> this is what it said. Uh, that You heard the nipple erectors and you went to buy the single and he was working in the shop. See, that's that's, that's, shit, is it? that's the movie version. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's just the movie version. No, okay, I there was that. <laughs> some, some made makey up story person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it sounds great. Yeah. yeah, isn't that weird? It's mad. People contact me they want to be my friends, mm -hmm. and I'm delighted to make friends. And then they start telling me things about me that yeah. they've read something so you know they've been googling yeah, which yeah. is creepy for a start and they repeat things without it ever occurring to them that it might not be true yeah. <laughs> which with my training now I've had it drummed into me for year after year research research your facts don't accept anything at face value yeah. just because somebody tells you something or you read something which is a good thing mm. to know throughout life. Mm. Like just because someone is telling you something mm. doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Which sounds like I'm yeah. having a dig at you. But, but no, I'm no, not, I'm no, just no, wondering no. about actually how I should interview people. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure whether I should get 
should find out about them beforehand or be totally fresh and just want to know about them so I'm hearing it for the first time what do yeah. you uh, what do you think I about? would bypass Wikipedia well, always yeah, that was obviously a bad idea there's not even any name on it no. now I, I find the best thing to do when someone contacts me and they're an artist and they want me to mm. sing with them I find interviews with them that have bylines and dates yeah. and I look at what's the um, actual publication you know is it somebody's blog or is it a published thing with mm. a publisher although you know that's getting less and less something you can rely I mean Rolling mm. Stone just had to retract an entire story oh yeah which has Rolling Stone's been going so long there is a degree to which you can say okay if I'm reading it in this magazine it's been fact checked yeah and now it turns out that doesn't even stand anymore well I'm pretty sure that stuff that happens on tour supposedly in something like the enemy or whatever I'm sure that stuff's exaggerated I mean I, I don't know I did an interview with Hot Press years ago when, when I started doing comedy and uh, we were doing a few gigs it was like around it sounded better than it was it was just bloody gigs to five people <laughs> but the stuff that was written in the article did not happen there was, an, there was a story about us stopping on the on the way to somewhere to go for a piss and being chased by a farmer with a gun which just didn't happen and what did you do about that? I didn't do anything about exactly because it's such a it cool sound, story it great. yeah you want people to <laughs> yeah. believe it yeah, yeah. So there's two sides to it. People make up stories because they're great stories and then something in us just goes, that makes me sound amazing. I know, <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm not going to call my it, lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Another part of that uh, uh, article said I was sharing a pint with Frank Black from the big season. So I left that one as well. Yeah, you're not going to demand a retraction no, no. on that one just because it's complete fantasy. Because <laughs> it's, it's your fantasy too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd love to be that person. I'd love to be. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's so, my tip is that bypass Wikipedia, yeah, look, but, look for interviews. But should, like, you know when you're interviewing someone, I've interviewed a few people on this, and if I don't know anything about them, it, then I'm getting to know it for first the first time rather than having read up on them. What do you think? Well, then my question would be, what criteria do you use to choose somebody that you'd think, I'm going to reach out to that person and ask them, would they like to come on my podcast? Because I admire them. Well, how, how do you know you admire them? What do you know about them? Well, yeah, okay, I'll say, with you, I, I just, I, I, I'm, we're friends on Facebook, I just admire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know, I, I, I just uh, or your attitude or whatever, something about you I, mean, I don't maybe know that much about you but it um, comes across somehow okay well that's interesting so social media plays a big role mm. so up until but some of the interviews are comedians and I know them and I'm trying to get to know how people end up in show business and what, what makes them go in that direction that's a fantastic thread is that the thread of each podcast well, that's really what I want to know about yeah. well that's wonderful that's such a great starting point it makes it so much less kind of amorphous and rambling when there's actually a, mm. an end result in sight yeah. that's really cool yeah because like I have not come from a my, none of my family were involved in performing right and yet there was something in me that really really wanted to be on stage that's fantastic like just driven to yeah. be on stage and you made it happen and then made it happen and how many people don't make it happen that's fantastic Joe. yeah well the fact that you do have an interest 
and there, there's a kind of end result you're going through going forward means that the pre-interview research isn't a problem because if mm. you're inviting people that you know are in showbiz mm. and you want to know how they got in showbiz that's the question really isn't mm. it you don't really you can start there and then you don't need mm. to say look somebody up and say well you were born here and I know this about you because that's all irrelevant people can tell you that but you can say you're in showbiz how the hell did you get in showbiz yeah. and then people can just unwind wind backwards and you know like my version would be well you know I remember when I was a kid and used to watch Wizard of Oz and used to love singing along with the songs and that's how I got interested in music you know which is much more interesting than well I read this on Wikipedia oh yeah yeah no no it is yeah but like there's none of your family then that are in no, not at all. My my yeah. older brother was a very, very highly intelligent guy who got into astrophysics. My uh -huh. dad was an electrician engineer. Uh, my mother was a you know very serious um, special intensive care nurse. Mm. Um, yeah, and then me <laughs> played bass in punk bands. Yeah. Um, so, but did you really want to be in a band or did it just happen accidentally or did, did it like... Oh, no, I, I wanted really to wanted. be in a band. I, I got a bass when I was 16 ah, okay. and I was, remember, sitting in my room like trying to learn all the riffs off the Fall records. They were the funkiest band I knew. <laughs> Amazing riffs. And he's... The thing about the Fall now, they've been gone 30 odd years and the bass players are completely interchangeable and yet they're still the funkiest band the, right, the yeah. riffs the rhythms of them so it's obviously like, all coming out of Marky Smith yeah it's irrelevant who's playing bass it's all coming out of him he's the most contagiously funky man on the planet yeah <laughs> I, I have view they're all singing they're totally wired Rouch Rumble yeah. yeah amazing songs amazing what a guy and what a voice yeah and the whole persona and attitude Last time I saw them was the Kilkenny Arts Festival, the summer before last. And it was just genius. You know, I, I didn't have any expectations because the time before that I'd seen them, he'd shown up like two hours late and it had been great, but it was more like relief that he'd finally shown up. Mm. Whereas at Kilkenny, it was all like, it's, we're in a nice theatre, there's seats, nobody's dancing. But it was still like... we headbanging you could look yeah. around and see all these people like headbanging in their seats and mm. it was just like, he's unreal yeah the power he has once he winds up the musicians and lets them go yeah mm. that's my favorite band they are yeah <laughs> start ranting about didn't before. he have some kind of a run-in with gavin friday or something see know. did you read this on wikipedia no 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 <laughs> i'd say marky smith has a run-in with everybody who crosses his path I'd say so. I'd yeah, say, I'd yeah, say that yeah. he's just on the whole time, yeah. and it's not a peace and love kind of on. It's like let's get a bit of friction going here. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. He That's, creates his own world of drama. Do you know? Have you met him? Like I met him when I was sixteen. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I was I was kind of interning. We didn't call it interning then. I was an apprentice sound engineer, and um, when I was sixteen, I used to finish school do a waitressing shift and then go into town, into London. And I was working at the Lyceum and uh, the place in, I've forgotten the name of it now, it's so long ago. And the other one that was at the end of the Strand and um, just learning about DIing instruments into the desk more than actually 
uh, anything particular. It's actually, when I think about it now, that's kind of the engineering side of it more than the music side. Mm. But the four were playing one day and it was I was told to go around and find out does anybody need anything. <laughs> so I was going around taking orders for the shops and um, spoke to Marky Smith and I was so scared of going up to him. And he turned around and he was just lovely. He said, no, you know, that Mancunian accent. No, I'm all right, love. I don't need anything. I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> Ran away really fast. Whereas Nick Cave was playing one night and I went up to him and said, hello. And he just turned around and he was huge and he looked down at me and said, what do you want? <laughs> Whoa. I just backed away. You, you couldn't even answer that. Like, <laughs> no, I just like, I want nothing. <laughs> yeah, let someone else ask him. Right. <laughs> if he doesn't want a Kit Kat from the shops, then it's not, not my problem. Was that the birthday party time? It, right. Well, I was. It was 1981, so yeah. Must have been right. God, it was still the birthday party. When did they become the bad seeds? I have no idea. I can't remember. Yeah. So years. Yeah. Anyway. So, so you started playing bass with the Pogues. So, where were you playing first? Like, oh, uh, we played um, pubs. The first, uh, the first gig I can remember, we had to get two buses down to Brixton, carrying little lamp and bass mm. onto the buses and running. Yeah. Uh, but then we settled in there was a place nearby Shane was living in King's Cross and that that's kind of the hub of the Pogues was in King's Cross and there was a pub there called I think it was called the Pindar of Wakefield at the time and mm. it's changed its name since but uh, yeah there were these girls who ran a club every Wednesday called the Haywire Club and they were mates with Shane Shane knew everybody and uh they gave us a gig there and it just caught on immediately really straight yeah, away immediately knew. when I think back on it now it's amazing because now I've been working in bands that have to work really hard to get an audience and then they have to work hard to win the audience I just think it was so instant in the Pogues it was so easy mm. and I completely took it for granted I thought oh this is what it's like being in the bands People queue up out of the door. Everybody wants to see you. There's all these amazing songs. If you fuck up, it doesn't matter. People just laugh and buy you beer. <laughs> amazing to think back on it now, yeah. And from the start, you were yeah, doing old Irish songs, you know, like... The, the set list would have been Dubliner songs. Yeah. And I do remember, like, any time we drive somewhere, the tapes... There'd be Clancy Brothers tapes, there'd be Planksty tapes, mm, yeah. Paul Brady. Really? Moving Hearts, I think, started up around the same time or not much later. Yeah. But also Tom Waits and Bruce Springsteen, mm. you know, so songwriters, you know, great, great mixtapes. And I think that was Shane's record collection. It's just genius to take those Dubliner songs and make them punky, you know, it was just brilliant. But he was a punk, Shane was a punk. You know, so yeah, and yeah, and we but, were all speeding but, off our tits and drinking cider and forgetting to eat. So I guess that was the speed you'd play them at. Oh yeah, yeah. But just <laughs> to go back to that music that your parents listened to, yeah, and then to to well, so we were it, listening the energy to that, that it really that you really wanted it to yeah. have. You know? I know what you mean, but I think we're putting a kind of sociological spin on something that was so organic at the time. Mm. That, that I mean, a part of the. It was the full Thatcher era by then now. We're talking about 1981. We'd had two years of this terrifying neoconservative um, 
a real mind twist going on the beginning of the destruction of the unions which were mm. the fabric of uh, the UK um, people started bitching about the NHS the cost of the National Health Service like real frightening Orwellian stuff going on the rise of Reagan in the state so a big part of that was anyone who had any kind of culture or any kind of political brain amplified it like people who'd just been quietly London Irish became very much we are London Irish you know we, we want that that was a badge um, and I think Shane's thing and the Kevin Rowland thing of saying hang on a sec you know we're not just the IRA and we're not those awful racist cartoons or racist jokes which are on telly all the time and we started pushing back and asserting our culture mm. and asser asserting cultural heritage and history and it became a lot easier I think just in response to just how grim the English side of things was to push back and say well the London Irish thing is actually very healthy thanks yeah. and y we pity you guys that this is all you've got and this is this is what your glorious English heritage has come to is this bizarre freakish woman with all these bizarre freakish men licking her boots and people worrying about how much money are they going to make God, God that's about time <laughs> Yeah, yeah, grim. You know, yeah. I'm sure we've all got PTSD. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. There you go. Uh, and how did the uh, older generation of Irish people take to it? Did they like the votes? No, there was a yeah. lot of people who, um, because it was still very rooted in punk and we were young and we were drinking yeah. and there was... Um, I, I don't think we did enough to play down the drink side of it again kind of feeding into that thing was part of our fantasy was like yeah we're drunk all the time and we're wild and we get arrested and blah 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 um more because i think of the punk heritage that that's what you did and of course like johnny rotten was still the ultimate god if you were london irish because johnny was finsbury park irish mm. and uh he was our leader <laughs> and you'd have been Shane's leader I guess so um, yeah being drunk being a problem being a pain in the hole was very much something to aspire to mm. so of course older people or grown ups as they're known yeah. grown ups thought we were just embarrassing yeah. and I guess now if you see teenagers acting the goat and you you feel embarrassed for them, but yeah. you kind of say, "Well, you're." Oh come on! There was it. something more to it than just people getting drunk. You know what I mean? It well, was obviously drunk. we it knew was, that it was a statement or something. We knew that, yeah. but if we're talking about the older generation, yeah. what did they know? They'd never seen anything like it before. Yeah. It was the first time that there'd ever been anything like this. I don't think there'd ever been anyone who'd actively gone around saying, "We are London Irish. This is what we do." Mm. London Irish was just kind of what you happened to be. So I, mm. I, the grown-ups... It's just organic. The grown-ups yeah. wouldn't have seen anything like it before. Yeah. We were the first generation that had gone through punk as part of our musical training, musical heritage, and had also been, you know, had the Dubliners and the Clancy's and whatever mm. drummed into us. I also had a band called The Bachelors, oh, yeah. uh, Val Dunican. You know, this very kind of soft side of Irish music. Mm. And that was all part of my heritage too. 
Oh, the Bachelors. Sorry, I know the Bachelors. I thought you said you had a band called the Bachelors. No, no, no. The the Bachelors were played just as often. I heard the Bachelors just as much as I heard Gary Glitter or David Bowie or the Dubliners. It was a huge mash. So, and the fact that the older generation didn't like us, I think, wasn't a problem (laughs) because the people that did like us really liked us. And like I said, it was so easy. People just instantly went, "Oh my God, Shane McGowan, genius." And they loved the band. Like, what were the first songs you were doing that were written by Shane? Oh, there were these great ones, like Streams of Whiskey. Oh, yeah. Streams of Whiskey. Last night as I slept, I dreamt I met with Bian. I shook him by the hand and we passed the time of day. Mm. Isn't that just beautiful? brilliant, yeah. Are you not just going to drop whatever you're doing and find out what happened next? Yeah brilliant dark streets of london i like to walk in the summer breeze down dalling road by the dead old trees and drink with my friends in the hammersmith broadway dear dirty delightful old drunken old days that's poetry mate that's amazing poetry and you want to know tell me more tell me more mate what happens next transmetropolitan transmetropolitan is unreal Mm -hmm. the the imagery he got in there you know from a five pound bet in william hills to a Soho sex shop dream from a fried egg in Valtaro's which was a dirty old calf to a Tottenham Court Road ice cream and you try singing Tottenham Court Road ice cream when you're speeding off your tits and the clubberer is bashing it out at 160 BPM yeah. but he got all those words out <laughs> going transmetropolitan yippoye yeah oh, yippoye. oh Jesus yeah. genius yeah. genius Amazing. And then how long did it take to record? Was it your recording with him? Yeah, now, Shane, as you mentioned, he'd been in the Nips or the Nipple Erectors. Mm. Amazing parallel. He'd been in the Nipple Erectors. They'd had to change their name to the Nips. Then he starts Pogue Mahone. Pogue Mahone. We have to change our name to the Pogues. (laughs) So, yeah, so from his days in the Nips and making records, he already knew guys who could get records made. And I think it was within a year and a half that mm. we went into the studio to make our first album. Yeah. And that was such a great calling card that it all went up a level again. Suddenly Island Records, which was U2, Bob Marley's record label, yeah. wanted to work with us for the second album. Yeah, amazing. But that's the quality of the songs. Oh, yeah, just uh, unbelievable yeah. stuff. Um, uh, so we, well, were you touring all over Britain like and, and going abroad or yeah, we didn't you know, tour no. until I th- two years in because mm. oh, really? uh, we were just gigging constantly around London yeah. I do remember one day trip to I think Wolverhampton and I've no idea how that happened I just remember <laughs> there was a bus it was get on it and there were a bunch of our fans who bought tickets to come up with us so we all went up on the bus together played somewhere in Wolverhampton came back down again yeah that was so weird but then yeah then of course agents got involved booking agents started touring promoters we got a manager yeah just everything that's supposed just, to happen just all happened yeah everything and that's supposed to happen happened when did you play in Ireland first ooh I think we would have been I think I saw you in 1985 yeah. oh were you out there yeah. Salt Hill Leisure yeah I was ah. there I was at that yeah that was messy well sure they were all messy yeah, yeah. so oh that must have been 1985 then 1986 I remember we came back to, for winter to tour I remember it really clearly because Phil Lynott died 
the oh, day okay. we were driving up from Tralee to Galway. That was a shocking day. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Did you, were you playing places then that you were getting an antagonistic kind of reaction? Or did you ever have that at all? God, how would you untangle it? Because, I mean, uh, there's still the punk thing of, like, spitting and throwing things. I remember uh, Glastonbury, people throwing stuff up on the stage. Yeah. But we didn't take it personally because we would have thrown stuff. Right, yeah. I think we were way more antagonistic and our audience was more antagonistic. We did a gig. Would, would you know who Richard Thompson was? An yeah, English Richard folky. Richard Linda Thompson. Exactly. Mm. So Richard Thompson was playing The Dominion, which is a real classic old venue in London, Tottenham Court Road. Van Morrison used to do long stands there in the 70s. Mm. But in the 80s, we got picked to be the support act for Richard Thompson we did our little set, had a great crack play in this big place. Mm. This was quite early on. And then when we went off and we couldn't come back on because we'd done our slot mm. and the you know, the tech crew needed to do the changeover, our audience, were, who'd all come down the front and that, had a little stage invasion with us on our last number and had been thrown back in the audience by security, they started thinking, Richard Thompson, Richard Thompson, who the fucking hell are you? <laughs> who the fucking hell are you? Well, we all stood there like... <laughs> so I think, yeah, we were way more antagonistic to people than they were to us. Right, OK, cool, cool. <laughs> And uh, then when the second album, was it Ernest Costello produced the second album, was it? Yeah. Was How did he get involved with the, with the band? By, at some point, Phil Chevron from The Radiators right. became involved with the Pogues and... Was playing with it, playing... At that, at that stage there was there was kind of an intermediate period mm. where we knew Phil mm. obviously like we knew everyone London mm. Irish oh and he had a single on Elvis Costello's label that's what it was yeah. Phil did a thing with Agnes Burnell yeah and that came out on Demon Records which was Elvis Costello's vanity imprint he did the Captains and the Kings that's what it was yeah, yeah, yeah. a kind of Brecht vile thing mm. um so because we knew Phil and Phil knew Elvis Costello then Elvis Costello came to see the Pogues mm. and I guess Frank Murray who was our manager must have just asked him yeah will you produce the next album right. he said yeah ha brilliant there you go brilliant. again it's very easy easy just ask like internationally famous rock stars to produce your album but the Radiators had done that the Radiators had asked Tony Visconti yeah to produce their debut album and Tony Visconti just said yeah right which yeah. is amazing David Bowie's producer yeah amazing yeah so it, th there's a lot to be said for just grabbing your balls and going in there and just asking yeah yeah and then what was it was that a different kind of recording session where, where somebody no it was the like, same studio um, it was the same studio and did he I got put in a drinks ban I do remember that really because because it just mattered more because it was our second album and the uh -huh. songs had moved up to another level again and it was just it was more important so I wasn't allowed to drink until the record was finished but why why just you or was it just you well because I was the messy one you know, everyone else would just get drunk, 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 whereas I would have a, you know, I would get drunk very fast, but because I was very young, 
it took a lot to, before I'd pass out. So in the, the intervening hours between me taking the first drink and actually blacking out, they'd be fighting, they'd be breaking things, they'd be aggro, they'd be time-wasting, couldn't play for shit. You know, so they just put me on a drink span to save time. <laughs> I actually don't know how you can play an instrument um, uh, while drinking because I am very basic acoustic guitar player, but if I'm at a party and... I have a song that has three chords but if I've had a few drinks I can't play anymore of course not and people tell themselves awful lies about how they need a few drinks but it's just it's a, it's a lie you know it's a molecule ethanol it crosses the blood brain barrier it directly starts to shut down mm. your functioning it affects your motor function your executive function mm. the choices you make how fast you can move your fingers the precision with which you do it of course it stops us playing and yet people say oh I need a few drinks whenever you hear anybody talking like that like my little bullshit alarm goes off and I start thinking intervention really (laughs) you're lying to yourself about something that's important yeah if you care about music but you're telling yourself alcohol makes you play better then you're in trouble yeah Um, I'm sure some of the gigs must have went haywire then with the the amount of drinking yeah but people loved that they loved it of course they did that's exactly what they wanted to see yeah exactly I'd say the percentage of people who came to a Pogues gig hoping that Shane would be sober and that he would sing every word with bell like clarity would have been not even 1% yeah vast majority of people wanted to see Shane throw up oh and actually wanted Shane to puke on them (laughs) there you go so they could tell people yeah. yeah. Oh my God, Shane McGann threw up. Oh, he was right in front of me. Sad, sad people. Yeah, I mean that's, that's pretty. Uh, did, does Shane ever feel that that was a pressure on him that to be uh, the drunken? The times I used to try and talk to Shane about real stuff, and he would always, always shut me down, and he'd always know exactly how he'd start just saying outrageously sexist things. If I'd start talking about, you know. anything personal if I talk about politics or literature or history use grand talk all night but if you started to ask anything about Shane Mm. bam he'd start talking about tits or farting or the toilets yeah Yeah, he'd just derail it instantly because he knew it would wind me up and totally distract me from asking about him (laughs) we could just have a fight about something else so yeah expert at deflecting questions about himself okay right so anyway, you returned the states. Then is that when you started a relationship with Elvis? Costello? Do you call it Elvis Costello? Elvis oh, I'm not Costello? talking about him. You're not talking about him. No, so long ago. Okay, that's fine. Do you call him Declan or Elvis? I don't call him anything. Oh, you don't call him anything. I don't no. call him. You don't call him. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. But then, um, what did I say? Because did that anything to do with you leaving the band, or why did you leave the band? Why did you? I left the band seriously because it was interfering with my drinking. Are you serious? Yeah. I I wanted to be drunk all the time and not have people hammering on my hotel room door saying, get up, we have to go to the next gig. Or we're going to miss the ferry or we're going to miss the plane. And people constantly being angry with me because I was fucked up. That's unbelievable. I always thought if there's any band you could continue drinking in, it would have been the Pogues. Well, no, I mean, the Pogues were really good. If I'd been in a shit band that had shit songs and no tours and nobody coming to see them, it wouldn't have mattered. 
but we had agents, promoters, a record label, people in the band who weren't complete wastrels. <laughs> yeah. So there was expectations, there were responsibilities, and I was just letting everybody all down all the time, which I didn't, that's not how I explained it to myself at the time. My thing was that everyone's pissed off at me all the time. I'm sick of it. Mm. Walking. But I was 21, yeah. Flipping hell. What happens then when you leave the band and you've got nothing to do? Then you drink. Just all the time? All day. Holy crap. <laughs> I'm not the first addict you've ever met. <laughs> no, I just had no idea, actually. Oh. Yeah, um... How long did that go on for? Well, I got sober in 2007. So, but that's a long time then. Yeah, it's half a lifetime, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? Are you talking... How much drinking are you talking about? <laughs> well, addiction yeah. isn't quantity. It's actually, no. you know, like I said, I could get drunk extremely fast. Like, mm. one drink would... I could feel my executive function start to shut down. But that's what I wanted. I wanted to be numb and not have to take responsibility for anything. Um, I mean, there are people who can drink multiple bottles of vodka and then there's complete lightweights and they're all addicts because the um, defining quality of addiction is do you have control once you take the first drink? Mm. And I once had you, no control. You mean once you take the first one, can you stop? Yeah. Because, I mean, how many people do you know say, I'm just going to have one drink? And they completely mean it. And they have other things they need to do and want to do. But they take the first drink and five hours later they're still there drinking. And they've completely rationalised away all the other things they need to do because all they're actually going to do is keep drinking or using whatever their thing is or gambling or fucking, whatever their thing is. I'll just have one fuck. I'll just have one, and, and then, then I'll go, and then I'll go home. Five times. You're still there. You're still chasing it. <laughs> <laughs> but behavioural and substance addictions—they're all coming from the same area of the brain. It's all going on in the nucleus accumbens, and it's all very ancient reward neural networks in the brain that are linked to survival instincts. Mm. But they've just gone haywire. It, it, it's uh, how do you um, replace that feeling of? Do you know what I mean? If it's a a reward type thing or whatever, or yeah. something to look forward to. That's a really good question. Like I feel very, very grateful that my substance was alcohol because mm. one, it's legal, easy. There's no jail time involved unless you actually, you know, drive into somebody and kill them. Um, and it's complete. If you're a musician and if you're in the pogues, you're completely enabled. You know, people will actually actively buy you drink. They want you to get more fucked up. But um, I have family who whose substance was food, which I cannot imagine how you can even deal with that. With alcohol or heroin, it's very easy. You just say, I'm not going to take the first one. I'm not going to take the first drink. I'm not going to take the first hit. Mm -hmm. Because if it's not in your system, then it's not taking over your brain. You, you have the craving and you can manage the craving but you're still in control mm. if it's food you have to take some food well, you can't no, you can't, you stop can't not food. you can't say well I'm just not going to take the first food mm. you have to eat every day so and I've no idea how people deal with that my relative who was addicted to food died of a heart attack because they couldn't stop so that's a really good question how the mm. hell do you if you have to 
keep using to some degree how do you manage it and I've no idea because mm. <sighs> I you know I drink but yeah I probably have done that what you've just said I'll just have the one uh, probably in the last week <laughs> so. intervention <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay um, so uh, you know I mean I've got into exercise a lot and uh, that's I find great pleasure in exercise when I do do it yeah yeah yeah. I had a friend visiting last week and he was saying his program his recovery program is based on exercise and nutrition so that sounds really nice mm. mine is based on fear but I like the idea of it just being based on like getting up in the morning and you know being healthy that sounds really nice <laughs> yeah oh I think there's a, in a there's an ad- adrenaline thing that you probably get addicted to as well you know ah, endorphins endorphins yeah, yeah. But um, so you have to take it. When you say fear, you mean you're, you're taking it what one day at a time? Yeah, thing? one day at a time. Well, I've uh, no safety net. There's yeah. no safety net. Yeah, so <laughs> just don't take the first one. Yeah, right. So you, you don't want to talk about. But you were with him. You were you touring with him. Can you talk about what your lifestyle what was? What is wrong with you? Because I'm just trying to. Because your life gets to a certain point, and then you still lived after that. I mean, without talking about Elvis Costello, just what you were doing. I presume that would have enabled you to keep drinking as well, because you're with someone who you you can go on tour with, and you don't have, but you don't have to play an instrument. You don't have to go on stage. Would you? Do you not think that would? Uh, you know, that's part of your. That enables you as well to keep drinking, possibly. Yeah, I drank for twenty years. Right. Okay. And that's all. But I you wrote did. a couple of songs in the meantime, didn't you? Maybe. Broken. Good song. Maybe. I don't <laughs> remember. No, really. <laughs> okay. And then what happened? Why? Why did you? What made you stop? Oh, well, by the time I stopped, I was 42. So obviously, a 42-year-old with a hangover is a very different thing from a 22-year-old. It was just two decades of worse and worse and worse hangovers. Yeah. And I'd been just feeling constantly sick. There was no let-up at some point. I guess in your late 30s, you pass the point where you never recover. You're just constantly coping with the hangover. And you permanently feel shit. And I'd remembered when I'd been in a hostel when I was 17, somebody talking about they had an implant in their stomach Mm. that had made them, would make them throw up if they drank. And I had a flashback to this. I was like, what's stomach implants, alcohol? So I was looking at antibuse, it was called. And because I thought I had a willpower problem, I thought my problem was why do I keep saying I'm only going to have one drink and then I keep drinking and then the whole bottle's gone and then I open another one? Mm. That's willpower problem. So I made an appointment to go and see my doctor and I went in to see him and I said, yeah, I'm having a real willpower problem with alcohol and I'm sick all the time and I keep drinking more than I mean to. Mm. And he says, that's not willpower. He says, I think you're addicted to alcohol. And I was literally stunned because in my head, addiction was only to do with heroin and in my head an alcoholic was just somebody who was messy when they drank and mm. I, I, I would label I would have labeled myself an alcoholic 
because my definition was just someone that there's problems if they drink but that my doctor who I trusted and had known for ages was saying no you are addicted to this substance and I was like what you mean like a junkie is addicted to heroin he goes yes it's exactly the same thing <laughs> I was like no way because it didn't I didn't even know that alcohol was an addictive substance really this, you know I, I surely knew, you must have no I thought alcohol was just a drink that had consequences for me mm. So I knew nothing about the molecular structure of alcohol. I knew nothing about brain responses to um, yeah, but, no, but these things. You must have known about AA and surely you're thinking, well, why does that? But exist? again, because my definition of, because you hear this phrase alcoholic, and I think there's a terminology problem here. If the word alcoholic was either banned or was only ever used in this way that people would understand it, it meant somebody who is addicted to alcohol and alcohol is an addictive substance then yeah that would be a good way into understanding but I had a completely different definition of what alcohol it was and alcohol it was just somebody who, who got messy when they drank mm. nothing to do with addiction and no sense that alcohol and heroin are qualitatively the same substance when yeah. it comes to addiction so then I had to go and, and just because I am by nature a nerd and my doctor was very canny about that and he just gave me loads of homework to do and I got sent off to a rehab facility that very much focused on all day lessons you know it wasn't skipping around smelling flowers and talking about our childhoods it was actually educating us about addiction mm. which was perfect for me and uh, yeah and I, also it was very frightening that, that thing because it was a 12 step uh, I'm not a 12-stepper, but the rehab facility was based on the 12-step program that AA is based on. Mm. And step one, when people talk about the steps, what actually happened was um, these people in the 30s who had managed to quit all met up and sat around, said, how did we manage to get sober? And they agreed after a lot of wrangling about the wording. They said, step one to getting sober is you accept that your lives are out of control and that you have no control over alcohol. And when I read that, I just thought, oh, that's me. <laughs> My life's out of control and I have no control over alcohol. So that, then it made it very easy to just stop kicking against the program just because right. they'd use the word God. And uh, I don't like being told what to do either. But um, I accepted that people had been through this exactly the same nonsense I'd been going through. And they had got sober. And just by accepting that we don't control alcohol, alcohol controls us just made it very easy to move forward and to just accept it the difficult bit is I do want a drink every day you, and that's just that's my little thing that I have to manage every how does day that, does you actually have an urge to have a drink every oh day oh my god yeah because my, my thing was red wine and you know you, you're going to see a glass of red wine every day whether mm. it's on telly whether it's a photograph whether you're out with your mates and there's always that moment where I see it and then I immediately get a kind of Proustian smell of it, mm. you know, if it's, even if it's just a picture, I kind of smell it. And I get this kind of flashback of that lovely numbing sedative feeling mm. that I used to get from the first sip. And you just have to surf it. You just have to go, OK, you know, I will come out the other side of this, but I'm not going to take a drink today. Yeah. And it's just that little thing you go through. 
Does that mean you can't be with people who who drink? I know I'm around people who drink every day, yeah. <laughs> but uh, and it's just. But I like being with them, and the the fact that they're drinking is not the most important thing about them or us being together. And it's just the thing I have to manage, you know. And compared with, say, if you were diabetic and you had to excuse yourself and go and inject yourself, or if you had a colostomy bag and you had to go and change that. You know, if if you're only going to have one illness and it's being addicted to alcohol, mm. you you're doing great. It's very manageable. You know, it's not chemo. It's it's a very manageable disease mm. if you want to manage it. Yeah, and do you think is it a neurological thing or is there something is like is there a history of it in your family or does, does there have to be the best research well when yeah. I say something's the best research it means I agree with it yeah, yeah. <laughs> the best research I've found about addiction is it supports what's called the diathesis stress model which is a half and half nature nurture environment mm. versus DNA mm. model and a diathesis would be that you do have a genetic DNA disposition towards a disease mm. and stress will be uh, indicates that the disease does not necessarily manifest you know the DNA does not necessarily kick in and encode unless a particular set of circumstances mm. come into play mm. and for addiction the diathesis stress model says that there will be a, a genetic component there will be a family heritage but it doesn't necessarily manifest as a physical problem unless there are also stresses in the family if you're abused if you uh, suffer some kind of trauma early mm. on um, and that just rings true for me and for every every other addict I know now at some point that might be overturned and somebody might say it's 100% genetic yeah maybe but I, I think a lot of people have addict relatives but aren't addicts themselves yeah. So, which to me indicates then the stress model is an important component of the full picture. And is the part of the recovery, like uh, kind of therapy and going back in your life and all that thing as well? Is there, do you know what I mean? Mm, I think part of recovery is understanding mm. why you've been doing what you've been doing. So, and if it's. And, and what's your understanding of why you were doing what you were doing? I, well, things I've already told you, you know, my dad wasn't present. My mother was extremely stressed out working right. a night shift, watching people dying and then coming home to four kids and dealing with them on her own. That was a very tense home life. Mm. And then outside, bombs were going off. We're getting slagged off and called murderers at school for mm. having an Irish name. Um, you know, the Tories get in, the whole world turns upside down, the, the world we'd grown up in of the NHS and unions were crumbling, you know, strikes, rubbish in the street, bodies piling up outside Chiswick Mortuary because the morticians are on strike. It's quite, when I think back now, it was really gothic, ugly world and home wasn't a safe retreat. So I just think I was at a constant high level of stress all throughout my childhood and once I discovered how nice and numb alcohol would make me feel on the first drink, I got hooked on that. And the paradox, of course, is that it wasn't a relaxing drink for me because I would be very violent on alcohol. That's why my nickname was Rocky. I'd just keep starting fights. Would you? Physically? So, physically. Yeah, physical fights that I couldn't finish. Other people had to finish for me. 
<laughs> you know, I was in. People indulged that for some reason. I was. Um, I went out with a girl once who who would start fighting with men, and generally they would fight me. Then yeah, it's <laughs> a pattern. Yeah. So, but of course, you know, people laugh about it or they think it's a quirk. But did she? You know, every day when she was getting ready to go out, did she say, I'm going to get messy and start a fight with a bloke tonight? She probably didn't. Mm. She probably started each evening hoping that she'd look pretty and have a nice evening. Mm. And yet at some point, it all goes twisted. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, like, now, do you, do you have close friends around? You know I mean? Do you have a yeah, kind of a- Yeah, I've just spent the last week on holiday with mates. That was nice. Oh yeah, where'd you go? We went to Morzine in France for skiing. Ah, nice. You ski? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I started skiing about maybe 10 years ago. My sister lives in Bern in Switzerland. Oh, lovely. So I used to go over and visit and um, I'd bring my kids with me so that they could learn to ski. But I learned, I'm not good, but... We don't need to be good, do we? No, but it's bloody fun isn't it it's so much fun it's a winter wonderland yeah it's lovely and everyone's having the crack as well i ski very very slowly because same here my dominant thought is like if i fall and break my arm i can't play oh, God. So, <laughs> yeah and uh, you know who's gonna wipe my bum <laughs> stuff like that i'm very cautious about preserving myself in one piece so I ski very slowly. Who so would wipe your bum? <laughs> exactly. Well, you'd, you know, you'd have to get a nurse in. And yeah. I don't like sharing my space. <laughs> I'm all about preserving myself while enjoying the fresh air and scenery. And the apres ski crack with my mates. And it's just, it's a great kind of holiday. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't gone in a few years now. I started doing lessons up in, uh, you know, the, the dry slope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I go to Sandyford, yeah. Oh, it's I the did. same thing. It's yeah. just like a giant carpet treadmill. Mm. You just practice your mm. turns. The last time I skied actually was in Dubai. You know they have this indoor. No way. Skiing. Like Kiltiernan. No, it's real snow. But you know they spend fortune on. Oh in, my it, god! It's kind of. I would go to Dubai way. just to ski. Just to say I skied in Dubai. Yeah. It's in the middle of the Emirates shopping mall. There's a ski oh. slope and, and it's roasting outside and yet they Fantastic. spend a fortune on yeah. uh, having real, having snow and all this kind I'm of gonna stuff. I'm going to start chasing out because I know there's a... I keep seeing like Monday and all these guys keep going off to Dubai, Dubai and yeah. playing some pub there. So Magetigans. Magetigans. I have mm. to get on that circuit. Do, yeah. I'll try. I'm, I think I'm doing a few gigs there at... Uh, Three weekends apparently in the autumn, and maybe maybe we should have some music. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. We should jam. We should jam. We I'd should love jam. that. I'd love it. Yeah. Great. When when are you doing your next gig? Are you, is prenup still happening? No, no, no. no that's that finished. that was that. Was, had a particular set of songs about a very specific thing, and once he got that out of his system, right, it, we were good. Um, my next gig is I'm singing on f- this Friday, the 10th at Wheelands with the mighty Steph. He's launching his new album, oh, cool. which was produced by Alan Johannes, who is Mark Lanigan's producer. Yeah. 
Um, and then wow. on Friday, the big one, the Roddy Doyle, Barry Town Meets Music Town celebration of the One City, One Book. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's the Vicar Street. That's Glenn Hansard, Damien Dempsey, Imelda May, and me. Wow. Some lineup to sneak nice. on to. And then next it's, Wednesday. Well, when is that Vicar Street gig again? Sunday. How do you not this know Sunday, about it? Because yeah. you said Friday. Friday is the uh, mighty Friday step is, at Whelan's. Whelan's. And Sunday the 12th so, is the Roddy Doyle okay, evening well, at Vicar Street. Come to Great. I'm gonna come to I mean, I'll be in town doing a little gig, so you might if I pop up to Wheelands. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. All right, cool. So that's this then, week. Next week, I'm singing at another guy's launch in Temple Bar. Mm. And then a big one, I'm going up to Belfast to play the Cathedral Quarter Arts Festival on May the 2nd. Oh, but because I'm playing that, it means I can get in for free to see The Stranglers the night before. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which I'm really excited about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. JJ yeah. Brunel. Yeah. Fantastic. Did you go see them back in back in the day as well? No, I would no. have thought they were terrible old posers back in the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they're so old. Oh, they're trying too <laughs> they hard. They were old, weren't they? Yeah, but now I, like, I love them. Yeah, no, yeah. they're good. Peaches is great. Yeah. And what kind of stuff are you doing like now? What kind it's of? It's a mix. A lot of it. It's a lot of Shane songs. A lot, of, but yeah. but played much more. I've, I've turned out. I'm actually a rock chick. This is yeah. what I found out about myself when I play. A rock chick. Thank you. So, you look uh, amazing with the bass. <laughs> you have some great photos on Facebook. Oh, you Bob Gallagher took those. So yeah, cool. fantastic. Yeah. I'm glad you like it. So I'm working with these two young guys. So we're just the rock trio line up me singing and playing bass mm. oh my god we're the police oh, <laughs> Harry's playing guitar and a very yeah. young lad a 20 year old on drums who's just brilliant and so we just so we're yeah. playing the Pogue stuff but it's rock instruments and it's punk yeah I'm trying to be as as, as raw and uh, you know just not trying to kind of police myself yeah not trying to make it sound pretty or good try, try, just trying to let go a bit mm. so because uh, there's a lot of catharsis you'd know this of so just being up on stage absolutely and letting go if you're not worried too much about what people think of you so my criteria for the gigs is that did we work really hard yeah and if we work really hard then we've got a clean conscience yeah. even if I end up going into full Patty Smith screaming mode if that's what's happening that's what's happening oh that's cool <laughs> even if it's in the middle of dark streets of London <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah 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 so that's what we're doing so mostly pogues and then just stuff I love there's a Lanigan song in there there's a the most uncool song I know which is by Placebo which is called Nancy Boy which I love and I oh, love Nancy playing Boy. it I love Nancy Thank Boy Thank you yeah, yeah, I yeah. love I love that and I love playing it. I love yeah. seeing people's faces. What's she singing? Because the lyric is really cool in that. Yeah. Um, a Lucinda Williams song I love called Drunken Angel. I don't know that one. It's just kind of a, it's about a guy called Blaze Foley who just drank himself to a standstill. Mm. Drunken Angel. Why did you let go of your guitar? Why did you let it go so far? All right, cool. It's a great song. Mm. Um, we were trying to learn Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. You know, punk song. Whatever happened to my rock and roll? I really. Huh? I don't know that one. Oh my god! No. But it's a tough one to sing it and play it at the same time. It's patting your head, rubbing your tummy at the same time. Yeah. It's really difficult. So we probably won't do that one. <laughs> don't want to make life too difficult. <laughs> I love Nancy. Is that Nancy where it all breaks down in the first in the first rehearsal? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, alcoholic kind of mood. Oh love yeah, it. what a yeah. great song. So what, what, are you doing that in Vic Street? Is that the, what you? No, doing? Vicar Street. It's yeah. an unusual one. Roddy Doyle was a big fan of Phil Chevron's. Oh yeah. And when, when Phil passed on, the rest of the radiates from space 
they took a break and then they said we want to keep playing and we yeah. want to keep playing Phil's songs but yeah. we won't use the Radiators name because there's no Radiators without Phil Chevron mm. so they renamed themselves after one of his songs so now they're called the Trouble Pilgrims mm. so they're playing three songs and then I joined them for one of Chevron's songs mm. Kitty Ricketts but then I got asked would I add on two more songs that are specifically for Roddy yeah. so I'm going to sing um, that one that was in the snapper Lick the Tins Wise Men Say Only Fools Rush In Can't Help Falling In Love All right, right. And in the Lick the Tins version which is that whistle and I'm using the whistle player from Blood or Whiskey who are a local Dublin punk band he's going to play whistle on that but we're also going to sing Man You Don't Meet Every Day just as a tribute to Roddy Ah, because he's a Man You Don't Meet Every Day of course yeah I, I sing that song Man You Don't Meet Every Day it's a That'd classic one of my party songs great you put on a Scottish accent when you sing I learned it off a woman called Jeannie Robertson and when I was a teenager so just the way she sang it I thought that's the way you sing it yeah. her pronunciation ah, that's lovely yeah. brilliant well thanks a million for coming in my pleasure it's it great was fun good. talking to did you did you enjoy it chatting of course did you yeah <laughs> I love just looking at you Joe. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I love looking at you. Um, so I'll, we must do something in Dubai. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's work up a little set. Let's work up some songs. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. I'd love to. I'll, yes. I'm going to sort that out. Cool. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks a lot for coming in. My pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope that went well. I think it went well. I hope uh, I hope Koch enjoyed that. Uh, I certainly did. It was uh, it was just a, it was a great uh, great to find out about Koch and her life and everything. She's just a really good girl, really nice girl, and she invited me down to the Mighty Steph gig, which uh, I did go to. But I'm sorry, I missed. I missed you, Koch, on stage because I was doing my own gig earlier on. But it was incredible. Incredible gig, the Mighty Steph. Uh, they were joined on stage by the Stripes for a couple of songs at the end. It was just incredible. And Mike Pyro, Mick Pyro from Republic of Loose at one stage as well on a brilliant night. I bought the album Mighty Steph, Year of the Horse. That's brilliant. I bought two copies, um, actually, uh, and got a free T-shirt. A brilliant T-shirt as well. So that that was brilliant. So I'd really love to, uh, perhaps, if you, if you need to... Uh, feel the urge to get some new music please buy the album The Mighty Steph The Year of the Horse thanks again to Koch for coming in for the interview um, next week I'll be talking to uh, Steve Frost who has uh, he's, I'm performing with him this weekend and whose lines it anyway uh, but he's been uh, he's been around since the beginning of the alternative comedy scene in London he's been in The Young Ones and uh, Blackadder uh, Mr Bean um, and my gig's coming up are uh, well tonight. I'm in the laughter lounge at the Who's Lines It Anyway, and and uh, tomorrow night, Saturday night, um, and on um, next Monday, I'm doing my own improv, the Dublin Comedy Improv in the International Bar. That's on every Monday, but I'm on this particular common Monday. Uh, that's the uh, 18, 19, that's 20th isn't it 20, uh, first I'm in the button factory I'm just doing a little slot there uh, try, maybe try out some new material then the following Thursday I'm in the White Horse in Ballincollig in County Cork on the Friday I'm in the check-in in Temple Bar doing a 
trying out new stuff as well probably and on Saturday I'm in Kildare House Hotel in Kildare thanks for listening see you next week I'm seeing something. It's smiling at me. But not a friendly smile. The worst smile I've ever seen in my life. Do you see it right now? Smile. Rated R. Only in theaters September 30th.